0: scripture reading this morning is taken from 2nd Chronicles chapter 34. 2nd Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord And walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols, and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles, and crushed the idols to powder, and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder. He sent them to repair the temple Of the Lord. Verse 29 Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites. And he had all who were present in Israel Serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their fathers. And this is the word of the Lord. Do you ever get frustrated about America? I love this country. But as I see what's happening in it, I find myself getting very frustrated. Crime, racism, corruption, drugs, alcohol abuse, sex, pornography, lying, stealing, swearing, divorce, homosexuality. Same-sex marriage, AIDS, abortion, an anti-Christian spirit across our land. In some cases, chaplains being forbidden to pray in the name of Jesus. Teachers in our public schools being exhorted to teach that which goes against their own religious convictions. And above all, sin within the church. And I read that litany of problems and I say, what is the answer? Is there an answer? And it is well for us to be reminded that Judah once faced very similar situations. Josiah faced them And he did it in a wonderful way. The temple had fallen into disrepair. The building was about 375 years old and had not been repaired for 250 years. It had been closed even before Hezekiah became king. Manasseh built altars in it to the host of stars an abomination in the sight of God. Manasseh sacrificed his sons in the valley, bringing the wrath of God down upon him. Under Ahaz, Manasseh, and Amon, the temple was allowed to fall into ruin. But God put it on Josiah's heart to do something he repaired the temple it's an interesting story i wish we had time to go into all of it in second chronicles 34 but what they had collected money to repair the temple they sent the workmen in and lo and behold they found the bible which had been lost in the temple what an irony But this Bible was taken to the king, and it was read before him. And Josiah's heart trembled, and he said, "If if this is God's word, we've got to change. We've got to do something about this. And so he repaired the temple. He renewed the covenant. And God brought revival. I love what it says in verse 33. Of our text. Josiah removed all the detestable idols. And as long as he lived. The people did not fail to follow the Lord. The God of their fathers. What a tremendous revival. Took place. Under Josiah. But people ask the question. They say that that was Bible times. I mean, God doesn't do this anymore. That that was just for that age. Or was it? Can it happen again? Let's take a little stroll through history and see what we can learn. In the 13th century, Europe was filled with unrest, insecurity, insecurity. And war. The Byzantine Empire was staggering. The fall of Charlemagne's empire threatened a return to barbarism. And everywhere there was fear, gloom, and apathy. But God stirred the heart of one man, Francis of Assisi. He sought the Lord's face. He sought God and he began to preach. And hundreds of thousands of people turned to Christ. And the history of Europe was changed by that revival. In the middle of the 15th century, the Renaissance was at its high point. Now, the Renaissance had brought some very good things It had freed people from superstition and authoritarianism. It had introduced the arts. It had done some very good things. But it had also introduced the spirit of secularism, of worldliness. And there was a great decay of morals throughout Europe. Historians say that there was unparalleled iniquity. And worst of all, the church was corrupt. What hope could there be in a situation like that? But God stirred the heart of one man, a man named Savonarola. And he began to preach with power. And again, hundreds of thousands of people put their faith in Christ. And all of Europe was impacted by that revival. In the 16th century, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Luther and Calvin and Knox. But by the 18th century, there were serious problems in England. Deism had arisen, robbing the people of a personal God who could act on their behalf. There was an increase in wretchedness and crime. Drunkenness and foul talk had taken over. The purity and fidelity of marriage was sneered at. There was no effective police force. And the spiritual life of England was numbed and nearly dead. But God raised up a man named John Wesley and his brother Charles And another man named George Whitfield, And they went out into the fields and they preached outdoors, something that had never been done in England before. And God used their preaching to bring hundreds of thousands of people to faith. And historians tell us that the work of John Wesley saved England from a revolution like the one that took place in France and spared England in a terrible day. But other things happened in that revival. Wilberforce put an end to slavery. John Howard brought about prison reform. Robert Rake started the Sunday school movement. Trade unions were founded to bring about better working conditions for people in the mines. And all of English culture was impacted by that revival. In the 18th century in America, there was a great disinterest in religion. There was gross immorality and rampant unbelief. There was licentiousness, and the churches were dead and boring. But a man named John Erskine, who lived in Scotland, wrote a little book on prayer. And he sent his book to a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts, named Jonathan Edwards. In that book, Erskine called for United Extraordinary Prayer. And Jonathan Edwards took that challenge seriously. And he and others began to pray that God would send a revival to the land of America. And God did that. And we call that the first great awakening from the 1730s through the 1740s. And that revival spread across our nation But then there was the Revolutionary War. And following the Revolutionary War, there was a moral and spiritual slump in our country. 1799 was the low point. 300,000 people out of a population of 5 million were drunkards. Profanity was everywhere, and there was even a club called the Filthy Speech Movement. Bank robberies took place all over our country. Women were afraid to go out at night. Dueling became a curse. Churches were losing their members. It is estimated that only 5 to 10 percent of the adult population in America considered themselves church members in those days. They could not find one single believer in Harvard University. They found five in Princeton, and very few, if any, in Yale. John Marshall, the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court, Wrote a letter at that point to a friend, and this is what he said The church is too far gone ever to be redeemed. A friend of George Washington's wrote to him and said, Because of the moral condition in our country, I am more fearful now than I was during the war. And George Washington wrote back and said, I share your sentiments entirely. It seemed hopeless. What could be done to bring America back to its senses? Well, in 1794, a man named Isaac Bacchus called for prayer, united prayer, bringing the churches together. And they met on the first Monday of every month, and prayed for revival. In 1799, James McCready issued another call for prayer, and people in America began to pray and call on God. And what happened? A man named Francis Asbury began to preach, and he went from city to city, from state to state, and the camp meetings began to arise, and hundreds of thousands of people turned to Christ under his preaching. Lyman Beecher was one of the leaders. Timothy Dwight, who used to be the pastor of the Greenfield Hill Congregational Church and a president of Yale University. He took a challenge to the students at Yale. He presented them with Jesus Christ. And in the first year of his ministry there, two-thirds of the student body turned to Christ and became Christians. Other things happened. The modern mission movement arose. The American Bible Society was founded. Sunday school movement took, took flight. The temperance movement was started, home mission societies, and on and on we see the results of what we call the Second Great Awakening. But then, in 1857, the nation was divided, and we were headed for civil war. Everything looked bleak. The union was going to be divided. What could be done to spare America? But in 1857, a layman named Jeremiah Lamphere gave an invitation to prayer. He said, we'll meet at Fulton Street in New York City. The first week, six people showed up. The second week, 20 people. The third week, 40 people. And in six months, 10,000 people gathered every day in Fulton Street to pray for revival in our land. And God heard their prayers and He sent a great revival. 50,000 people were converted every week. During that time, within two years, a million Americans had put their faith in Christ. And that was out of a population of only 30 million. Jails, prisons, and theaters closed by the thousands. Courts had no cases because there was no crime. And out of that revival, a young man named Dwight L. Moody came to faith in Christ and began a 40-year preaching ministry in England and America and saw thousands put their faith in Christ. And we call that the third Great Awakening. In 1905, conditions in Wales were terrible. The labor conditions, especially for the miners, was just awful. There were low morals. There was hopelessness everywhere. And religion was dead. But an evangelist in Wales, his name was Seth Joshua, took a leave from preaching to devote himself to prayer. And he prayed earnestly that God would send a revival. And God raised up a young man named Evan Roberts, an ancestor of a former assistant pastor in this church, Donald Roberts. And Evan Roberts began to preach all over Wales. And within one year, a hundred thousand people had come to faith in Christ. Taverns were closed. Business prospered because people who had stolen were paying back what they had stolen and there was honesty in business. There were no cases in court. The police were unemployed, so they formed gospel teams and choirs and sang all over Wales, bringing the gospel to the people. Drunkenness was cut in half. Illegitimate births dropped 44%. And that great revival that we call the Welsh revival jumped to Norway and Sweden and Australia and America. And it actually impacted the whole world because somebody prayed and somebody preached. And we call that the fourth great awakening or the Welsh revival. The closest I have ever seen. To revival came in those years immediately after World War II. The world had lost its hope. News of the concentration camps, the murder of six million Jews, the devastation of a good part of Europe. I traveled in Europe just after the war. I saw cities just destroyed. I saw the rubble of of the city it was pathetic and there was a spiritual hunger in people because there was hopelessness all over the world but God did something and a man a young man who was unknown Billy Graham had a campaign out in Los Angeles California And it was picked up by the newspapers and by Life magazine. And pretty soon the whole country was talking about Billy Graham and what was happening. And some thrilling things happened out there. Jim Voss, who was a criminal, came to Christ and started preaching. Red Harper, an entertainer, came to Christ and began to write gospel songs. And over and over the story, Louis Zamborini, a great Olympic runner, came to Christ. And, And we began to see things happen. And after his first Los Angeles crusade, Billy Graham came to Boston. I was present on New Year's Eve 1949, the first meeting of Billy Graham's Boston crusade. Dr. Ockengay, in introducing Billy Graham, said, Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. And that's exactly what God did. The crusade was scheduled to be about two weeks long in Mechanics Hall. But so many people came and so many people put their faith in Christ that they extended the crusade week after week after week. And when they could no longer use Mechanics Hall, they moved to the Opera House. And when they could no longer use the Opera House, we moved to Boston Garden. And 20,000 people night after night came to hear the gospel of Christ. Marion and I were freshmen at Gordon College then, and we took part in the crusade. She sang in the choir. <laughs> I was never invited to sing in the choir, but, but I, I did personal work. In fact, I led my first soul to Christ in the Billy Graham crusade. And we would go out from Boston Garden and get into the subways and on our way home all through the city. This is Boston, Massachusetts. All through the city, we're singing hymns in the subway, praising God for what He was doing. You could be saved by reading the front page of the Boston Globe because they gave an accurate summary of Billy Graham's sermon day after day. The campaign went on and on, weeks from New, Year, New Year's Eve way into April. And I was present one Sunday afternoon when 100,000 people gathered on Boston Common to pray to God for our country. And God did something great in those pre-war years. Bob Pierce started World Vision. Bob Cook rejuvenated youth for Christ. Leighton Ford preached alongside of Billy Graham. Bob Evans started the Greater Europe Mission. Clyde Taylor gave life to the National Association of Evangelicals. Christianity today arose as a a periodical that challenged the liberal periodicals. The Luzon Conference on World Evangelization took place, and people all over the world began to move out for God. Service people who had been sent to strange places like New Guinea went back to New Guinea as missionaries. The gospel was preached over the radio and on television, And we saw a permeation of a revival taking place. But can it happen again? I believe with all my heart that it can. And the simple formula is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Where God says, if my people which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. God said, humble themselves. Joel 2.13 says, rend your heart and not your garments. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God said, pray. Isaiah 59.16 says, and God was appalled that there was no one to intercede. And in Psalm 80 verse 3 the psalmist begged God, restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us so that we might be saved. And God said, seek my face. Hosea 10:12 says, it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness. Upon us. But in America today. We've been captured by secularism. Materialism. We're comfortable. And somehow the zeal. And the power. And the conviction. Has gone out of the Christian church. Across our land. And it must be restored. Or there is no hope. Seek the Lord, the Scripture says, while He may be found. And that's not always. There are seasons when God can be found. And if we don't act in those seasons, He may withdraw His presence from us. And then He says, and turn from your wicked ways. 2 Timothy 2.19 Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Oh, I fear that we've compromised. And the church is meant to be a contrast to the world and not a faint carbon copy. Can it happen again? I believe it can. I'm going to dedicate the remaining years of my life to preach this message all over New England. I've been invited to do that. And if God gives me the strength, I will preach this until I die. Because this is the only hope of America. And it's the it's the necessary thing that we have in the world. Can happen again, and by God's grace it will. But the big question is do you want it? Are you willing to pray for it? Are you willing to seek his face as never before? Are you willing to turn from your wicked ways? The psalmist prayed, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Let's pray together. Oh God, we need you. Desperately, we need you. Lord, our beloved country has turned its back on you. And we're reaping a terrible harvest because of it. But Lord, those of us who are here this morning, we love you and we love our country. And though we don't deserve it at all, we plead your mercy and your grace to send revival once again. Oh, Lord, be glorified in our country. Be glorified in the church. Be glorified in our individual lives. For your sake and for our sake. This is our prayer. Please rise for the benediction. Now as you leave, may you long for revival, may you pray for revival, and may that revival begin in you. Amen.